Lord, uh, we're, we're grateful for, for days like this where we get up and it's just, um, we, don't, we don't have big falls here, but when, when they turn, we, we really enjoy them. And we, we understand that this all comes from you. Everything we have comes from you. We are grateful tonight for, um, it's, it's the end of the day, and uh, we're tired because of work, but we're grateful that we had work. And we're grateful that uh, we have homes, and we're grateful that we have um, provision for our basic needs, and even for more than our basic needs. Uh, we are extremely fortunate. We have uh, received much favor from your hand. You have been so good to us in so many ways. There are so many people around the world suffering. This situation in Pakistan, that hasn't happened here, and we thank you for that. And we would pray for those people who are hurting and who are, uh, many of them, without hope because of what they have been taught. But we also thank you that you were working in the Muslim world and that uh, Muslims are coming to Christ uh, in droves because of the way your, your spirit is working. We thank you tonight that we can look into your word, into your book, into the book that is above all books. We all have different needs. We're coming from different places. We're dealing with different issues. We're dealing with different situations. Some of us are facing family issues. Some of us are facing marriage problems. Some of us, Lord, are... uh, We're just worn out. We're just flat-out weary. Some of us have lost heart. Some of us are discouraged because of situations that are swirling around us. So we come here tonight uh, to hear from you. We come here tonight because it's possible that we can become weary in well-doing. And quite frankly, Lord, uh, we run out of gas sometimes, and we're just just going on fumes. And we... uh, We know you're there and we love you, but quite quite frankly, we feel very distant from you. That happens to all of us at times. Other guys are doing well, and for that we are grateful. Wherever we are, though, and whatever our circumstances, we admit that we need you. We admit that we are all in over our heads, and we quite frankly don't know what we're doing. So we turn to you. We thank you that you offer us wisdom We thank you that you offer to navigate us through life. You you told David, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And you not only made that promise to David, but you promised that to us. So, Lord, almost every week we ask you to give us what we need. Not because we do that out of rote, uh, habit, but because that is precisely where we are. We ask you to give us what we need. Quite frankly, most of the time, we don't even know what we need. We think we do, but
but we don't. So thank you for covering all the bases. Thank you for grace and mercy. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for covering our tails. You have done so much for us. And some of us are wondering if you will be faithful in this situation that we're facing right now. We're wondering if you will come through. Well, Lord, you've come through every other time. There's not a reason in the world you wouldn't come through again. It's all mercy. It's all grace. We revel in it. And it just keeps coming. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, earlier this year, I was talking with a, with a guy um, after I'd done a conference. And he made a statement to me, and uh, he, he said this. He said, I'd, I'd never heard you speak before, but um, you struck me as being combative. And 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 I, I and I, and I and I thought about that. And um, and I get combative sometimes. But there's a reason I get combative, and the reason is we're in a war. We 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 really are in a war. If. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're never in peacetime. You're always at war. You know anything about history? You study wars. And uh, World War I was the war to end all wars. So they thought. So they said. But uh, it wasn't. It wasn't too long after that you had World War II. And then we were involved in the Korean conflict. And not too long after that, we're sending guys to Vietnam. And then, and right on up to today. Um, I worry about guys that never are combative. Now, there's a wrong way to be combative. But when we're talking about what we believe and what is true, uh, we are at war. And we are in combat. And military metaphors are used all of the time in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was in the thick of battle. Uh, he was always in battle. He was always in warfare, just as we are always in warfare. Uh, we tend to forget that. Because we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the unseen powers uh, that's what we're up against. There is a spiritual war going on in the heavenly places. Um, Satan is a real being. He is not equal to God. He is a created being. He uh, is an angel. He is a fallen angel. He was the chief, if you will, of the angels. Had, a, had an incredible position. Had incredible authority. But it wasn't enough for him because uh, he wanted to become like God. He wanted to become as God. He, he wanted to be number one. He wanted to be running the show. He didn't want to be in submission to anybody. And as a result of his rebellion in heaven, he was thrown out, and a third of the angels went with him. Uh, those are the demons 
and they're active in the world. When we get serious about following Christ as men, then the enemy gets serious about us. If you're just a Texas cultural Christian, uh, the enemy is not going to worry about you because uh, he's already got you neutralized. But when you get serious about following Christ, following Christ, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Um, We come to know Christ through believing in Christ, but that is not where it ends. We are not to be just Christ believers, we are to be Christ followers. And when you become a Christ follower, you're in the army now. Great old hymn, we don't sing much anymore. Onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people today, a lot of Christians, they don't like this military stuff. They don't like these military metaphors. Uh, well, they got a problem. Because you see, we're at war. And we're in a battle. And we got somebody after us. We have someone who hates Christ. And when you love Christ... He hates you because you love Christ. So you're going to get some opposition, and you're going to get some difficulty, and you're going to have some flack, and you're going to get some fire, and you're going to have some hardship. Well, Paul is living proof of that. Uh, We have been working our way through 2 Corinthians because as we go through 2 Corinthians, we are getting glimpses into the life of Paul and into the heart of Paul. I said, I think it was last week, that if there was a list, and from time to time you'll hear of these lists, you know, different publications will come out with, you know, the, the top 100 leaders of history. Uh, I doubt if, you know, if Time Magazine did that, they probably wouldn't have Paul on there, but Paul ought to be on there because a case could be made that more lives have been touched and more uh, lives have been changed. And when you really think about how God used Paul, how strategic Paul was, There are leaders that impact their generations. You have to say the greatest leader of the 20th century was Churchill, hands down. I mean, he was a pivotal leader. But Churchill is dead. Now, we'll read his books and all that, you know, and and, and, and it's inspiring. But there's nobody in history who has played such a pivotal role that continues, and I'm speaking other than the Lord Jesus Christ here. I'm I'm, I'm speaking of a man, just men period. Other than the Apostle Paul, and and Paul wrote a vast majority of the New Testament, how many lives have been changed today across the world by scripture that Paul wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What I'm saying is, I don't think anybody else in history is having the impact generation after generation after generation as the Apostle Paul. An incredibly strategic leader, a a hard-driving charger, who was against Christ and against Christianity, who was convinced that it was wrong. And then he ran into Christ on the road to Damascus. Why was he going to Damascus? He was continuing his efforts to stamp out Christianity. And then the Lord Jesus appeared to him, and his entire life 
changed completely and totally. And word got out that this guy who was the great hater and persecutor of Christians was now becoming a champion of Christianity. He has an amazing story. Um, When he came to know Christ, he had no idea what was in store for him. That's true of all of us. The scripture tells us that one of the things that the Lord wants to do is that he wants to conform us into the image of Christ. That's quite a statement when you stop and think about it. Uh, You know, a lot of us don't like change. I used to think about myself that I was very open to change. I used to think about myself, I considered myself to be a very flexible individual. Change didn't bother me. I I could roll with the punches. You know what I've come to realize about myself? I don't like change. I I get in the comfort zone, I like things a particular way, and I don't like it when those things get turned on me. Um, I just don't. Now that presents a problem. Because one of the things that the Lord wants to do in my life, as he wanted to do in Paul's life, and as he wants to do in your life, is that he wants to conform me to the image of Christ. Now you stop and think about that. He wants to conform me to the image of Christ. You know what we're talking about here? We're talking about major change. For me to become conformed to the image of Christ. We're talking massive change. And part of the problem is, I don't like change. But change is necessary for that to occur in my life. So there are going to be transitions, and there are going to be shocks, and there are going to be changes, and there are going to be things that aren't in my daytimer, and there are going to be events that happen that aren't in my seven-year strategic plan that I've come up with for my life. Change. None of us like it, but we all need it. By the way, you know how many psychologists it takes to change a light bulb, don't you? Just one, but the light bulb must want to change. (laughs) Now, you know what? Light bulbs don't have to want to change, but we do. The goal of the Christian life is not to grow old in Christ, the goal of the Christian life is to grow up in Christ. That's going to involve change. Now, how does this change occur? Well, we're seeing this in 2 Corinthians. And what we're seeing is Paul would go through these periods in his life where there would be tremendous pressure in his life. And I want us tonight to go to 2 Corinthians Chapter 11, we touched on this and we've read this, we referred to it one evening, but I want us to look at it. Because, you see, um, Paul went through a lot of stuff. Well, he was in battle, as we're in battle. In 2 Corinthians 11, he is uh, having to defend his apostleship, he's got his critics And we pick up in 23, he says, are they servants of Christ? And in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 here, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. And then catch this, he gives this list. And he was reluctant to give this list, but they kind of painted him into a corner and he had to do it. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments. Plural. 
Not one imprisonment, plural. Beaten times without number. Couldn't remember how many times he had been beaten. Couldn't even count them. Often in danger of death. Not, not every once in a while, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. So that meant that Paul had fractures. That meant that Paul, from, from this list, Paul had uh, probably some kind of internal bleeding. There was probably, uh, quite frankly, he probably had blood in his urine because of what he had gone through physically for the gospel. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. What would that be like? Can you imagine such a thing? I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food. Did you catch that? Often. Often without food. In cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Uh, we'll just stop there. You know what's always interesting is what motivates a leader. Different leaders are motivated by different things. Um, and sometimes we think we know what motivates somebody, but um, you know it's hard to know somebody's heart. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a of a of a terrible apartment fire that occurred one winter's evening. It was it was bitterly cold, and um, people were asleep. And before you know it, this apartment building is just in flames. And the call goes to the fire department, and uh, they get there as quickly as they can. But flames are coming out the windows and people who escaped and were awakened by their neighbors are standing across the street watching this and they're in their night clothes and their robes and their pajamas and as they're watching this and and quite frankly it's just too late to do anything to save this building and the firemen are standing around and just putting water on the outside but this thing's going down they suddenly heard all of these people gathered watching this they they heard a baby crying upstairs out of one of the windows, a small child crying out. And, and everyone just was, just, I mean, they just were immobilized. Oh my, there's a little baby in there. There's a little infant in there. There's a toddler in there. And suddenly, a man bolts past the fireman before they can stop him and runs into the front door of that apartment building. And people are just mesmerized and watching and counting the seconds. They can still hear that infant, that that toddler up there. And they're wondering if he can get up there and make his way through. They're wondering if the staircases are even still standing. They're, They're watching, they're wondering, they're praying. And the clock is ticking and he's in there, and he's in there, and he's in there, and they're starting to lose all hope. And suddenly, he comes bursting out that front door of the apartment building, coughing, stumbling, holding 
a blanket covered something. And they just all were, they, they couldn't believe it. And, and he got out about 15 feet and the firefighters got to him and pulled. And as they went to him, he stumbled and fell. And the blanket opened up and his personal safe hit the sidewalk and burst open and his gold coins fell out on the grass and his stock certificates. See, what did they think he was going in there for? They thought he was going in there to save that baby, that little toddler. Nah. He was going in to save that which was most important to him. We're all motivated by different things. Some people are, uh, are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by power. Some people are motivated by greed. Some people are motivated by uh, control. So, you, know what, you know what I want to know about Paul? Is what motivated this guy? When I read that list of what he went through, and by the way, that list that we read in 2 Corinthians 11, that was just a list of stuff that had occurred up until that day. That wasn't the whole deal. That wasn't his whole list because he wasn't at the end of his life yet. He still had more stuff to go through like this. But the guy kept going. And the thing that I want to know is why would he keep going? What motivated him? Why didn't the sucker just quit and go get a job teaching night school in the synagogue? You know, he could have taken early retirement. He could have... Why did he keep pushing? Why did he keep doing what he was doing when he was paying this kind of price? What was it that motivated Paul? What was it that drove him? Well, you know what it was? It was truth. That's what it was. That's what drove the Apostle Paul was truth. If you go to 2 Corinthians 10, you look at verse 3, we're going to get a snapshot again into his heart and into his life and how he lives his life and what motivates him. And here's what he says. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war. There's a metaphor, a military metaphor. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. He's talking about spiritual fortresses. We are, now now catch this, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about a war for truth. For truth. Note, he says, we are destroying speculations. What is a speculation? It's it's an inference. It's somebody's opinion. Uh, A speculation is not truth. See, he is destroying. What he's talking about here is the gospel. 
What he's talking about is the body of truth that has been delivered to us. That it is under attack. Uh, You see, this is one reason that we are at war. Is that the truth of the gospel is always under attack. The truth of the Bible is under attack. And the truth of what we believe is under attack. When, when we go through things, and we go through things that, that hurt us, and that uh, wound us, and that disappoint us, and when our plans are dashed, and when our dreams are broken, what happens is we have to war to continue believing the truth that God is good and God is faithful. Because it appears on the outside, it appears that God is not good. It appears that God is not faithful because he's allowing all of this stuff to happen to us and we don't understand that. And then we look around at those that are opposed to Christ and against Christ and we wonder why they are doing so well. Ever happened to you? Uh, Turn over to Psalms, if you would. You got a situation over there where you've got a guy that's in that situation. Um, um, in Psalm seventy-three, I, I had to think about that for a minute. I thought it was Psalm seventy-seven, but that's another guy that's struggling. In Psalm seventy-three. The Psalm of Asaph, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. And I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever wonder about that? These people are absolutely contrary to God. Why their lives are going so well. One of the old Puritans, I'm trying to think who it was. Was it maybe John Flavel? Who said something, I don't have this exactly right, but Flavel said, how did he say this? Flavel said, God has given much to the evil in this life because they shall have no good whatsoever in the next life. Words to that effect. You know, God's gracious. God God is good to everybody. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But this guy's looking at his life. Things are falling apart in his life. And he's trying to figure out, look at God, these people are arrogant. These people are opposed to you. I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why are you allowing good things to happen to them? For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. The idea there is that they're prosperous. They're, they're taken care of. They are not in trouble as other men. What men does he have in mind as those who are trusting in God? nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Their garments of violence cover them. Their, eyes, their, their, their eye bulges with fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have, their, they have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues parade through the earth. 
Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Now catch this in 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, and I wash my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. You think about the, the, the magistrates that Paul would appear before. These guys were wealthy, these guys were privileged, these guys had status, these guys had everything, and here is Paul preaching the gospel. And these men that would sentence him to these different imprisonments and these different tortures, those guys, their lives were easy. And see, what happens is, is that, you say, hey, I'm trying to follow the Lord, I'm trying to follow the word, why am I taking all these shots and all these other guys that have no room for God, deny God, why is it their lives are going so well? And what happened to this guy? Look at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He says in verse 2, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. I almost stumbled over this because there's such a disconnect here. Verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Their end. Jesus talked about two paths. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to, anybody remember? Destruction. That's where they're going, is destruction. But then Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. When you follow Christ, you're on the narrow path going through the narrow gate. And I'll tell you what, the Christian life is a hard life, and the Christian life is a tough life. Don't let anybody tell you different. But there's a life that's tougher, and there's a life that's harder. And it's a life without Christ. Every day, when these guys get up, they're just a day closer to destruction. Forever. That's what you call a wasted life. We'll struggle. We'll wonder. Until you think about the destination. Until you perceive their end you're following christ destruction is not your end not at all let's go back to uh second corinthians and on your way to second corinthians 10 stop off if you would uh what is it in second corinthians 2 In verse 11, Paul, and, and we, we covered this one evening. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says this, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Uh, we're in warfare, and Satan has different strategies. He has different uh, ways of attacking. He has different ways of discouraging 
He has different ways of seeking to neutralize us and immobilize us and keep us from being effective in this warfare. He, he has all kinds of strategies, all different ways that he attempts to do that in our lives. And he attempted to do that with Paul. Um, he will attempt to take advantage of us by different schemes. Uh, Paul is going to mention one of the schemes that Satan is notorious for back in 2 Corinthians 10. When he says in verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. He's speaking about truth. There, there is no Christianity without truth. This is really, this is, this is, this is very interesting to me because of our culture. If you want to tick somebody off in our culture, all you need to say is that Jesus is the only way to God. I mean, what hubris. Who are you to make such a statement? Where is the diversity in that? Where is the multiculturalism in that? And by, and by multiculturalism, I, I am not speaking of um, I'm not speaking of skin color. I am speaking of cultures and their beliefs about God. Christianity is superior because it is true. The, uh, you, you, you know, religions have implications and religions have consequences. It was the early Christian missionaries that stopped the practice in India of when a man would die and his body would be put on a raft in the Ganges River and covered with kindling and then his body would be torched before they would light the fire, they would take his living wife and put her on it. It was that way in, in India for thousands of years. Because, you see, that's part of their culture. That's part of their religion. Well, that's horrible. Well, sure it's horrible. So don't give me this multicultural stuff. Don't tell me everything's equal. Because it isn't. And why is it in India and in Hinduism, you've got people, you've got a caste system and people called untouchables. And, and they are filth, and they are vermin. And do you know in India that, that people in the caste system, the untouchables, are coming to Christ by the thousands? They're the ones that are coming to the Lord. And there's all kinds of problems because it's messing up the caste system in India. Well, Christianity is superior because Christianity just happens to be true, you see. So we've got Afghanistan, and we've got the Taliban, and the horrific things they would do. Christianity is often accused of being anti-women, 
But the fact of the matter is, wherever Christianity goes, the status of women goes up. It's other religions that oppress women and put women down. So see, everything's not the same. Everything isn't equal. But that's what our culture wants to say. I, I remember when I was in college, um, I, one of my last courses I took, uh, they were just starting these religious studies departments. And colleges nef- never used to have religious studies. When colleges started in America, they didn't have religious studies. They had biblical studies, period. That's all you could study. Colleges that started in America were Christian colleges. And they weren't for everybody. The colleges that started in America were for the training of men to preach the gospel. People didn't go to college. George Washington didn't go to college. Lincoln didn't go to college. These guys worked for a living. Uh, the, The most educated man in a community was the preacher. And what was he educated in? He was educated in the Bible, and it was his job to teach the Bible. It was his job to teach what? Truth. That was his job, and that's why universities were founded. That's why Harvard was founded. You understand, don't you, that the purpose of Harvard is to propagate the truth of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? That is is the purpose of Harvard. You read the foundational documents of Harvard, and that's why that school was started. It's interesting, historically, because what happens is when a school is committed to Christ, the enemy will attack that school. And historically, one of his schemes is to raise speculations about the very truth that is being taught in that school. And to raise up lofty arguments that seem to be weighty and impressive. And and historically speaking, institutions, Christian institutions, at about the 50-year period, that's when they start to change. And that's when they begin to weaken. And that's when professors begin to get in who do not adhere. And and you you just read history. So you read it. That's what happened at Harvard. So a group of guys got together, and they said, that's terrible what's happened at Harvard. They they deny the truth of Scripture. So we're going to start a school that will be committed to Christ and committed to his word and committed to teaching the truth of Jesus Christ. So they started a school. You know what they named it? Yale. And then it took Yale about 50 years. And you go through the cycle again. And then another group of guys. This is horrible. This is terrible what's happened to to Harvard. And this is terrible what's happened to Yale. So we're going to start a school that will stand firm on the truth of Jesus Christ. So they started a school and they named it Princeton. The guy who is professor of ethics at Princeton right now is a guy named Peter Singer. Who advocates the right of parents to kill their infants if their infants develop terminal disease. You get a child that's two, three, four, no problem. Just put them to sleep. Just kill them. He runs the ethics department at Princeton. The whole Ivy League, they were Christian schools except for one. Thomas Watson about 350 years ago. Um, I love this guy. I got to visit his church when we went to England. St. Stephen's of Walpole. 
They didn't come because of the name of the church. They came because this guy could flat out bring the word. He's got a section here on truth. I'll just read you a couple things from this guy. Oh, I was telling you about this class I took. I got to tell you that, and then I can read this. It was 71, you know, you know, all the culture change going on in the 60s and early 70s. And they had this religious studies department, and the guy who was uh, head of it was uh, a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, a PhD. And uh, a man who had been pastor of a Presbyterian church there in Southern California, a very prominent church. But uh, he had had a nervous breakdown and gone through some really terrible things. And uh, apparently what had happened to him is that as he would refer to his breakdown, he would call it his breakthrough. And one of the things that he broke through was, um, well, he became open to different views. So now he was a professor of religious studies. And in this class, you know, it's 71, and, you know, we, we they, demonstrators took over the school and closed it down, and we had the tax squad, and, you know, all this stuff is going on, and they're burning Reagan in effigy. He's the governor, and all this stuff's going on. It's great stuff. And... What happens, uh, this guy's teaching this class. So you got all these different viewpoints. And throughout the class, somebody would say something, you know, and half of them, you know, half of them were stoned out of their minds. They didn't even know where they were. I mean, they're just, you know, man, it's like Bob Dylan said, you know, and they'd, you know, quote a Dylan song. Or some guy was, you know, Lao Tzu said. And whenever these guys would throw out these comments, this professor would say, his response was, he'd listen and he'd just kind of nod and, very open and non-judgmental, he'd say, well, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. No matter what they said. That was his response. For the final, you had to give a presentation on some thing that was of interest to you, and I don't even remember my topic, but I got up, and one of the, point, one of the things I did was I made the statement. We've heard from time to time in this class the phrase, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But we've never heard it in context. Because it was Jesus Christ who made that statement. And um, I don't appreciate when people take my words out of context and you don't either. So let's get the context of what he said. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, what Jesus was saying is, there is no truth apart from the Bible. What Jesus was saying is, there is no truth in Buddhism. There's no truth in Hinduism. There's no truth in these. Jesus was saying exclusively, and he said this in another place, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when you hear the phrase, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, it only refers to Christ and only refers to the, to the Bible. He didn't like that. He, he really didn't like that. I didn't get a real good grade in the class. But you know what? I, well, I, I did pass. But... But see, there was, but see, I was, see, sometimes you take tests that you don't know you're taking. Sometimes you think you're taking a final, but there's another test that God's got in mind for you. 
And you know what? Somebody needed to declare the truth in there because all these kids were lost as gooses. They didn't know where they were. So Thomas Watson, here's what he said. Oh, and by the way, Thomas Watson, they hated his guts so much in England, and, and they hated the evangelical preachers in London and, and in England, that in 1662, every preacher in England that proclaimed without apology the word of God, they threw him out of the churches. And they made it against the law for them to start churches, and they made it against the law for them to be preachers. It was called the Great Ejection of 1662. And he was thrown out. Here's what he had. Why? Because he taught truth. Here's what Watson said. He says, truth is an antidote against error. Error is the adultery of the mind. Now, you know what? You could chew on that for two hours. Think about that. He's talking about truth. He's talking about God's truth. And he's talking about error when it comes to this book. And he calls that the adultery of the mind. That's what it is. And it's everywhere in evangelicalism. Everywhere. And you know what can happen? It can infiltrate our lives. When marriage gets hard and difficult, and we don't feel understood, But there's a woman at work who understands you, or there's a woman who sits next to you at choir practice and she understands you and you enjoy talking with her. And then you just have lunch. Nothing wrong with having lunch. Oh yeah, there is. If you're married and you're not married to her, there's all kinds of things wrong with having lunch. You see? Because you're not just having lunch. And then it goes from lunch to this, to this, to this. And what happens? Then you wind up in adultery. And someone will say, well, don't I have a right to be happy? No, you don't. Did you find that in the Constitution of the United States? Well, actually, it does say that, doesn't it? But, but you, see, you see, no, you don't have a right to be happy. You have a right to be responsible. See, here's what happened. Error clouds. When we depart from truth, we've committed adultery in our minds. He goes on and he says, uh, error stains the soul as treason stains blood. Error damns as well as does vice. A man may as well die by poison as by a pistol. And what can stave off error but truth? He goes on and he says, truth may be compared to the capital of Rome, which was a place of the greatest strength, or the Tower of David, on which there hang a thousand shields. Our forts and navies do not so much strengthen us as truth. Truth is the best militia of a kingdom. That's why Satan always attacks truth. Uh, once again, how many of you have uh, uh, children in universities right now? Colleges, universities, or grandchildren? Okay. You, you need to understand where they are. Uh, I've been reading an article called uh, The Left University, How It Was Born, How It Grew, How, it, how to Overcome It by James uh, Pearson. 
he talks about the history of colleges and universities in the United States. And see, when, when you study this, what you're looking at are the schemes of the devil. Because colleges and universities, and I've already referred to, before the Civil War, they were small. They didn't have wide influence. Not a lot of people went to college and universities. They were based on the scriptures and on teaching scriptures to men who could then teach others the scriptures. That's where college and university concept came from in America. After the Civil War, there was a change. And he talks about some of the wealthy men who financed some new universities. Men's, men like uh, Rockefeller, men like Leland Stanford. Uh, and, and what happened was there was a shift after the Civil War. Many of our most influential universities were created during this time, uh, Pearson says. Um, the intellectual inspiration and institutional model for this revolution came not from Jefferson and the University of Virginia or from any American source at all, but from German idealists who brought about an academic revelation, revolution in that country in the early 1800s. The institutional model was the University of Berlin. Uh, it was under the influence of the idealist philosophers. Now catch this. Fichte, Kant, and Hegel. Here's what you want to catch. Who asserted that the task of the scholar was to search for the truth in science, philosophy, and morals unimpeded by political or religious authorities. The University of Berlin, Berlin, the original research university, was based on the idea that truth is not something known and passed on but the subject of persistent inquiry and continuous revision. It, it incorporated the practice of faculty autonomy in the selection of subjects for research and coursework and conceived of students as junior partners in the research enterprise, that is, as researchers or professors in training. This new institution thus recast the purpose of the university away from theology, tradition, and vocations and in the direction of science and secular studies. It discarded as well the practice of looking to ancient writers for moral lessons and political guidance. The new university thus placed the faculty rather than students, religious bodies, or public officials at the center of the enterprise, for it was the faculty that in the end would decide what was studied and taught. And they came up with something called tenure. Tenure is for people who can't hold real jobs. Because if they taught... In other words, without tenure, tenure means a professor can teach anything he wants. And you know what's interesting? Christian universities and seminaries have moved to a tenure system. And so what happened? Why? Because they've been influenced by the world system. So you get some guy that comes in there and says, yes, I agree with the doctrinal statement. Yes, I do. He gets tenure. He can teach anything he wants because he has academic what? Freedom. That's a scheme of the devil. Um, you, you read uh, Christian history in America, and you're going to see inst Christian institutions and colleges that have gone down by this chain of events. Now, you say, well, Steve, this is all very interesting, but you know what? I'm not a Christian professor, and I'm not this, and I'm not that. No, but you're a Christian. And here's what you should understand. What the enemy wants to do with us is that he wants to attack us in the area of truth in our personal lives. That's always been his modus operandi. Uh, real quick, go to Genesis. I'm about done. Who's giving me the signal back there?
Genesis 3. And I'm reading a book right now that is uh, being taught in evangelical seminaries. And uh, it is uh, a book um, that basically, uh, in talking about the creation account, and he's talking about how you interpret the Bible on different things, and the guy's got about 12 different ways that you have to go through to interpret the Bible to find out what the Bible's really saying. But the problem is he really doesn't like what the Bible's saying. So he's come up with this 12 thing, or 10 step, I don't know what he's got, but you know, and you've got to go through his deal to get what he wants it to say, because he doesn't like what it says if you just read it for what it says. And one of the problems with this guy is that he doesn't believe what I'm going to read here actually happened. He doesn't believe in the historicity of Adam and Eve. But it's being taught in evangelical seminaries. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. So what's that? It's a lie. And it's a direct attack on the revealed truth of God. No, 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 I can't do that because God said if I eat of it, I'll die. You will not die. What's being attacked here? True. What, what uh, guys, we, we've been looking at Paul's life. We've been looking at what he went through. We've been looking at the sorrows. We've been looking at the excessive sorrow. We've been looking at this and that. Can I tell you what kept Paul going? Was truth. Truth. You know why Paul could go through those beatings? You know why he could go through... Uh, uh, those whippings. You know why he could go, go through all that? I'll tell you why. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ did not raise from the dead, we are fools, and we are of all men to be pitied. Next spring, it'll be Easter. People flock to churches on Easter. There are a lot of solid evangelical churches in Dallas. There are a lot of liberal churches in Dallas. And there's going to be some yo-yo in some liberal church who's going to get up on Easter Sunday, and he's going to preach about Easter, and he's going to say something like this. You have to understand that the real meaning of Easter is not the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Christ. It happens all the time. You know what? Easter is about the physical, literal, bodily resurrection. Here's what Paul said. What kept Paul going in his life? You know what kept going? The resurrected Christ appeared to him. That's what kept him going. He knew it was true. He knew it. He knew it was true. Now let me ask you something. What keeps you going? You go through difficulty, you go through hardship, you go through disappointment. You cannot get off this book. You cannot close this book. You have to to keep this book open because it is your source of life. You close this book and you've cut off your water and you've cut off your food. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So here's what I'm saying to you. As we're looking at Paul's life, Paul fed off the word of God. We have to feed off the word of God or we will be defeated.
How do you not become weary in well-doing? By staying in the scriptures. You see, Steve, this is pretty basic. I grant you it's pretty basic. Being in the Bible is pretty basic. But this is what the enemy does. He attacks the truth and tells us it isn't true. Might happen in the university where your kids are attending. You know what? It can't happen in the home that you are the head of. It just can't happen. I feel like I'm pretty old school tonight. I feel like I'm not real open. I feel like I'm not uh, embracing diversity. And I'm feeling really good about it. Because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You guys agree with that? All right. You know what? Let's put some Band-Aids on and let's get back out there and fight. In the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. All right? Yeah, Lord, we have some doubts sometimes. Because we take some shots and we wonder if you're there. And then then sometimes we wonder if you'll accept us because we've screwed up again. But Lord, we can never plumb the depths of your mercy or your forgiveness. We, We are amazed. We are amazed at your loving kindness towards us. The enemy will tell us, Uh, You you can't go back again. You can't go back again for forgiveness. You've gone back a hundred times. You can't go back again. But we always can go back. That's your character. And the reason we know that is because the Bible tells us that. But he wants to lie to us about who you are. I pray, Lord, that you will instill in us again and anew this love for the word of God. This love for the truth that we'll stand on it if nobody else will stand on it. We can't live without it. Help us, Lord, to perceive the deception of the enemy. Alert us. Show it to us. In our own thinking, in our own value system, show us the shortcomings. Show us the flaws that we've bought into. We pray for this church, that if Jesus doesn't return in a hundred years, that this church will be preaching the word of God. There are a lot of churches that don't make it a hundred years. That once we're evangelical, we pray this church would. We pray that our families would. We pray that the truth would be transferred to our children and grandchildren, that they would teach it to their children. May they see it in us, and may they hear it from us as we go to war. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.